1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 7, and 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 through 22. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verses 6 through 7. There we read, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And then 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 through 22. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants, unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness. Yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. We have now come to the point in the biblical and historical development of our argument where we inquire whether the colonies or the states continue to be bound by the Solemn League and Covenant and the moral principles found therein after they declared their independence from Great Britain on July the 4th 1776. Having already demonstrated in past sermons that the colonies as dominions of the crown of Britain were bound by the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643, did the descending obligation owed to God to uphold the Solemn League and Covenant and the moral principles found therein cease once the colonies declared their independence from British rule in 1776. Let us first consider the scriptural text before us, and then we will consider more closely the question before us. And so our first main point is this. An alteration in the form of government does not alter a national covenant made with God. And we have read just a moment ago the two passages in our text, and so I won't read them now, but uh, we will be now looking at those two texts more closely. 
We've already established from previous sermons that the national covenant made between Israel and God at Mount Sinai did not cease when the people of God were removed from their homeland in Palestine and carried captive into various parts of the world. We noticed in Deuteronomy 29.25 and Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 3 that that was the case. They were still called God's covenant people, though they were scattered throughout many nations. For the Lord is not simply the God of a particular piece of real estate in Palestine, but is the omnipresent God of the whole earth, according to Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. There is no escaping God and the rights and duties owed to God, no matter where we may go or flee in the world, as Jonah himself learned when he sought to flee from the Lord. So likewise, dear ones, the rights and duties owed to God by British subjects bound by the Solemn League and Covenant did not end simply because they left the shores of Britain and sailed across the Atlantic to North America. Moreover, we have also established from previous sermons that the national covenant made between Israel and God at Mount Sinai did not cease when the ten tribes had formed themselves into a new nation with a new constitution in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26-33. The ten tribes of Israel continued to be the people of God because of the national covenant made between God and their fathers at Mount Sinai as is demonstrated in 1 Kings 16, verses 1-3, through 3, where Jehu is said to be prince over my people Israel. This is, Jehu was one of the kings uh, of the ten tribes, and yet he, he is said to be prince over my people, my covenanted people Israel, though they had altered the covenant, though they had formed a new nation, though they had declared their independence from the United Kingdom of Israel. And so likewise, descending, the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant between God and the posterity of Britain did not cease when they declared their independence from the United Kingdom of Britain and formed themselves into a new nation with a new constitution. But rather that same posterity continued to be bound to the Solemn League and Covenant, for they were not a different moral person after forming a new nation with a new constitution, but were essentially the same moral person before God with simply a new political identity before man. They went from being the colonies of Britain to the United States of America. Although their political connection to Britain might be altered, their moral covenantal connection to God could not be altered. Now, as we consider our scriptural text this Lord's Day, we note that altering the form of government from a decentralized judgeship to a centralized kingship 
within Israel, and more importantly, from God being their king to a man being their king, these radical and sinful changes in the form of government did not abrogate the national covenant between God and Israel made at Mount Sinai. Let us first observe that the Lord had ordained in the national covenant between God and Israel that He, the great God of heaven and earth, was King of Israel. Other nations had kings, but not Israel. God gave Israel judges, such as Moses and Joshua, Gideon and Samuel. Why? Because Jehovah God wanted Israel to know that he was Israel's covenanted king whose throne was in heaven and whose footstool was upon earth as evidenced by the Ark of the Covenant which contained the national covenant between God and Israel. Note how Samuel, the last judge of Israel, and God himself viewed this demand of Israel to have a human king to be a direct attack against God himself in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 7, where we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. Notice, that I should not reign over them. Samuel testified against Israel's sin of desiring a human king in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12. Notice there what Samuel says to Israel. And when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon came against you. Ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Interestingly, even Israel itself confessed their own sin in asking for a human king like all of the nations around them in 1 Samuel 12:19 when they said pray for thy servant unto the Lord thy God that we die not for we have added unto all our sin this evil to ask us a king thus although God did give Israel a king he gave Israel a king in his anger. Hosea 13.11 says, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. Let us not look back 
from our present perspective in history to this alteration in the form of government within Israel and somehow minimize how serious and radical from God's perspective, from Samuel's perspective, and even from Israel's perspective, this alteration was in the form of government God had established with them in their national covenant at Mount Sinai. This was a huge change to how Israel was originally ruled. But did such a huge change in the form of government in altering the national covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai, did it alter in any way God's covenant relationship with Israel? Did He cease to be their God and did they cease to be his people? Did those covenant obligations made at Sinai cease to oblige them? No, they did not. Secondly, from our text, we see and hear God's most gracious words to Israel spoken by Samuel in 1 Samuel 12:22, where we read, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Here we see, dear ones, the Lord continues to be in covenant with his people even when he is rejected as being Israel's sole king. The national covenant stands firm even though they may want their own king even though they may alter that form of government originally established. Israel is God's people, and the Lord is Israel's God by covenant. Outward circumstances in every imaginable way may be altered and changed for a covenanted people, but one thing that cannot be dissolved is a covenant relationship between God and that covenanted nation. That covenanted people may despise the covenant with God. That covenanted people may trample underfoot, burn, and rescind by human laws the covenant with God. That covenanted people in succeeding generations may not even consent to the covenant with God that their forefathers made. That covenanted people may be moved to another part of the world. That covenanted people may reconstitute, reorganize, and declare their independence from their fatherland. That covenanted people may drastically rewrite the form of government under which they now exist. But dear ones, that covenanted people cannot remove themselves from covenant with God. They will either be covenant breakers or they will be covenant keepers. But cease to be a covenant people? That they cannot do. The covenant of God binds them and their posterity. The only question is whether they will love or hate that holy covenant and whether they will love or hate the God of that holy covenant. I hope you see, thirdly, uh, from our text here, I hope you see the relevance 
in this as well as past sermons, of laying out these many acts of unfaithfulness on Israel's part as a covenanted nation. If Israel, through all of these acts of unfaithfulness and through all the alterations to their uh, legal and political identity, could not dissolve a covenant between them and God, then... I submit to you, neither can any other nation that is covenanted with God do so. For covenanting with God or covenanting in God's name is not a distinctly Jewish principle. It is a moral principle firmly embedded in the moral law of God as found in the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. As we have noted from previous sermons, God also owns not only Israel, but also owns Gentile nations that engage themselves in a national covenant with him to be his people, as is true of Egypt. In Isaiah 19.25. Thus, if Israel as a covenanted nation cannot dissolve the covenant between themselves and God, then neither can Egypt dissolve the covenant between themselves and God when that covenant is made and sworn. Then neither can England, Ireland, Scotland, the United States, or Canada, or any other covenanted nation dissolve the covenant between themselves and God, regardless of their covenant breaking or relocating to a different part of the world or declaring their independence from the fatherland or reconstituting themselves under a new or different constitution or reorganizing themselves under a radically different form of government than they had under a former national covenant. The outward circumstances... Listen carefully. The outward circumstances and political identity before man may change in radical ways. But the moral identity before God of those nations and peoples bound by covenant with God cannot change. We're going to elaborate more on that particular point now. Our second main point. Did the Solemn League and Covenant continue to bind the colonies or states after they declared their independence from Britain? We now come to this most critical question. The answer to that question, I would submit to you, hinges upon whether the same moral person considered as the posterity of Britain that was bound by the Solemn League and Covenant continues to be the same moral person after the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776. Was there the death and burial of one moral person, that is the posterity of Britain, and the creation of an entirely new moral person, 
on July the 4th, 1776? Or rather, was there a continuity of the same moral person, that is the posterity of Britain, from one political identity to another political identity? In other words, just to frame it, the question in a little different way so that you understand clearly the question at hand. Was it the moral person that died and a new one created on July the 4th, 1776? Or was it the political identity of the same moral person that died and a new political identity that was created on July the 4th, 1776? I firmly believe that both biblical and historical Evidence confirms that it was not a new moral person before God that was created on July the 4th, 1776, when independence from Britain was declared, but rather that a new legal identity, a new political identity before man was created on July the 4th, 1776. We've been talking about just here most uh, recently in, in the last couple of minutes. We've been talking about the idea of a moral person. And so I'd like to just spend a few minutes in asking the question, what is a moral person? And seeking to answer that question. Well, first of all, an individual is a moral person because he is accountable to God and to the moral law of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are accountable to God, according to Romans 3.23. An individual, as a moral person, is bound by lawful covenants made with God. We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4-6. through six, that that is true. An individual as a moral person cannot escape the obligation of God's moral law, including the third commandment, dealing with vows and oaths and covenants, wherever he might live or however his outward circumstances might change. His legal identity before man may change if he changes his name or if he changes his citizenship. But he cannot change his moral person before God. That individual is the same moral person throughout his whole life from conception until he dies. The same moral person here upon this earth. And he will be judged as a moral person by God. Not only presently, in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but also in the final judgment in Revelation 20, when all men, great and small, will stand before God. Well, now let's take it 
the idea, the concept of a moral person from an individual to a nation. Likewise, a nation and its posterity, whether Jewish or Gentile, is also a moral person because it is likewise accountable to God and to the moral law of God for its actions and decisions. In Psalm 9, verse 17, Psalm 9, 17, we read, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Not simply individuals, but all the nations that forget God. Certainly implies a moral person to a nation if they can forget God. That's a, a moral Injury and offense against God to forget Him, which a nation commits. We find in Psalm 33:12, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord." Here we find again a nation must be a moral person if it is blessed for making God its God. No doubt by covenant. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They covenant with God that God would be their God as a nation. They're blessed for doing so. We read in Isaiah 37, 16. Isaiah 37, 16. The words of Hezekiah in a prayer offered to God. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. You see, there is a covenanted way in which nations are related to God when they, as a nation, covenant with Him. But all nations have a relationship with God as their Creator, as the moral governor of this universe. And they are bound to obey God. And they will be held responsible for denying that revelation. Whatever extent of revelation they have, they will be held responsible for denying that which they have rejected, that which they have uh, refused to follow. And then in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7. Jeremiah 10, verse 7. We read likewise. Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, forasmuch as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. Again, the Lord is governor, is king of all nations. They are obligated to follow his moral law and to act, make decisions accordingly, just as every individual is to do so. A nation in its posterity, dear ones, is a moral person, for it is also bound by lawful covenants. 
with God throughout its generations. Whether it's this is true of Israel in Jeremiah 11.10 where we see that they had violated the covenant of their forefathers. That covenant continued from the time their, their fathers had established it between themselves and God and on behalf of their posterity and the posterity sinned against that same covenant hundreds of years later in the time of Jeremiah. And so the posterity are considered as a moral person with the father, fathers who swore the covenant. Likewise, we see this is true in, in Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25, where again we find heathen nations swearing to God to be his covenanted people and God owning them to be his, pe- his people and them owning God to be their God. And we see even with covenants between nations in Amos 1, 9-10 that when those covenants are violated lawful covenants between nations are violated Tyre is said to receive the punishment of God for violating the brotherly covenant a Gentile nation likewise a nation and its posterity as a moral person cannot escape the obligation of God's moral law, including covenants made with God, regardless of where the posterity might relocate to, or regardless of the change in the political identity of that posterity in declaring its independence from the fatherland and in forming a new nation with a new constitution. The political identity, again, listen closely, the political identity of a nation and its posterity before man may change. But the moral person of a nation and its posterity before God cannot change as long as there is any posterity living and surviving. Because the posterity is the continuation of the same nation in succeeding generations of the same people of the same fathers that swore on behalf of their posterity in all succeeding generations the colonies in changing their political identity before man from British colonies to the United States on July the 4th 1776 could no more legitimately deny that they were still the posterity of Britain than the son of English parents could legitimately deny he was the posterity of British ancestry, even if he legally rejected his parents, even if he legally changed his name, and even if he legally removed to another home and changed his citizenship. He can't change the fact that he is of British ancestry, that he is posterity, regardless of what he does in the eyes of men. He cannot change what is true by way of him being of British ancestry. And not only are individuals, dear ones, judged by God as a moral person, but also nations and their posterity, whether Jewish or Gentile, are judged as a moral person as we see that Egypt was judged with the ten plagues, as we see Tyre is judged in Amos 1, 9-10, and in Matthew 25, verses 31-32, through 32, 
God gathers the nations before him, it says, to be judged. Not only does scripture, dear ones, declare the moral person of nations and posterity, but even a deist like Thomas Jefferson had some understanding of this basic concept as indicated in letters that he wrote. For example, two examples, or two, two brief illustrations of that. Uh, this is his letter to George Hammond in 1792. Jefferson said, A nation as a society forms a moral person and every member of it is personally responsible for his society. He says in a letter to George Logan in 1816, It is strangely absurd to suppose that a million of human beings collected together are not under the same moral laws which bind each of them separately. What historical evidence demonstrates that the United States did not create a new moral person before God, but rather a new political identity before men on July the 4th, 1776? When independence from Britain was declared. Well, let's compare the next few minutes, let's compare how the colonies before the Declaration of Independence and the United States after the Declaration of Independence conducted themselves in civil actions and decisions. Did the United States act as though they had not existed as a moral person prior to the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776? Or rather, did they act as though they had existed previously as a moral person? Let's consider, first of all, actions, and then we'll look at words specific words, but let's consider acts. The Second Continental Congress was established May the 10th, 1775 and was disbanded March the 1st, 1781. In other words, the same Continental Congress that existed over a year before the signing and publishing of the Declaration of Independence, that is from May the 10th, 1775 to July the 4th, 1776, also continued to exist after the signing and publishing of the Declaration of Independence from July the 4th, 1776 to March the 1st, 1781. Now, I ask you, did the states and the Continental Congress understand they were essentially the same moral person before and after July the 4th, 1776, or did they understand they were essentially a new moral person that, that, that did not exist until July the 4th, 1776? Clearly, 
They believed their political identity had changed from British colonies to the United States of America. But just as clearly, they believed they were essentially the same moral person functioning in a different civil capacity by the fact that after July the 4th, 1776, they continued the same Continental Congress with the same members of that Congress, with the same committees of that Congress, and with the same president of that Congress, namely John Hancock. Nothing changed from July the 3rd to July the 4th. How could that be so if the old moral person died and an entirely new moral person was created on July the 4th, 1776? Likewise, it should be noted that it was before the Declaration of Independence was signed and published on July the 4th, 1776, that the Second Continental Congress established the Continental Army with George Washington appointed as its Commander-in-Chief on June 14, 1775. the same Continental Congress before the Declaration of Independence established the Continental Navy on November the 28th, 1775. The same Continental Congress created Continental Currency resolved by Congress on July the 22nd, 1775. The same Continental Congress secretly established foreign relations with countries, especially for the purpose of providing arms and ammunition through the Committee of Secret Correspondence in November 1775. The same Continental Congress established the United States Postal Service with the first postmaster, General Benjamin Franklin, on July 26, 1775. The same Continental Congress borrowed money and accumulated war debt. The same Continental Congress took economic steps to restrict trade with Britain. All of these many actions and many more decisions of the Continental Congress I have just enumerated continued unabated without any change after the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776. These are not the actions of a civil body that believes an entirely new moral person began on July the 4th, 1776. That did not exist on July the 3rd, but all of a sudden, by the stroke of a pen, came into existence on July the 4th. Clearly a new political identity before man was created on July the 4th, 1776, but not a new moral person before God. Now we looked very briefly at the acts and the decisions that would indicate there was not a new moral person that came into being with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. What about the words? What about the words themselves? So second, I would draw your attention to the Declaration of Independence itself. 
in order to further demonstrate that even this founding document makes it clear that it was not a new moral person before God that was created by this document, but rather a new political or legal identity before men that was established and called the United States of America. All one need do in examining the Declaration of Independence is to count the number of times that the pronouns we, us, and our occur in this document, which I did 48 times. And then note that the use of these pronouns in this document refers to the existence of the people as British colonies and as free and independent states. Now, why is that important? It demonstrates that the signers of the Declaration of Independence, or Independence as the official representatives of the United States of America understood that they were essentially the same people before the Declaration of Independence as they were after the Declaration of Independence. If we, underline we, if we as a people who now declare our independence from Britain due to flagrant and continuous, continuous moral wrongs committed against us, when we were British colonies, then it must mean that the same moral person exists before as existed after the Declaration of Independence. Consider these three examples from the Declaration of Independence. And there are many, many. As I mentioned, there are 48 times that these pronouns are used. I'm going to just give you, you know, three very brief examples. Listen to this. He, that is the king, has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislature. Now, the keeping armies among us was not during war. The Revolutionary War began in 1775, so the king began to keep armies in the colonies before 1775, or in 1775. Perhaps, uh, again, I'm not ex exactly sure when the first troops arrived, but it was certainly before the Revolutionary War began because it says it was during times of peace. But note that Though they are declaring their independence on that day, they don't say, he the king has kept, uh, he the king kept among them in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of their legislature. But he said, but they say, he the king has kept among us before the signing of the Declaration of Independence in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our Legislature. Furthermore, how could moral wrongs be inflicted on us 
that is, those who were declaring their independence on that particular day, how could more wrongs be inflicted on us, quote, unquote, if they were not the same moral person that existed before the Declaration of Independence? If it was an altogether different moral person that existed before the Declaration of Independence than existed after the Declaration of Independence, as I said, it should have rightly used the word them to refer to those before the Declaration of Independence and us to those who were signing it after the Declaration of Independence. And again, another example, we read in the Declaration of Independence of more moral wrongs committed by the king in these words, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. Here note that the moral injustice committed by the king was in taking away our Charters, the, the very ones signing the Declaration of Independence called the charters, the colonial charters, our charters. Thereby indicating that they who signed the Declaration of Independence and declared themselves free states declared their independence from Great Britain that they are the posterity of Britain who received those charters. They are all the same posterity. They are one moral person because they say they were our charters. Not their charters, our charters. And then one last example is when we get to the, the conclusion of the Declaration of Independence where they actually formally declare their independence from Britain, that paragraph begins with these words, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, and then they declare their dissolution. We. The same we and all the other times that they refer to we and our and us prior to the declaration all form one moral person, not we and them, but we, our, and us united together as one moral person. Thus I submit it is inescapable from the very words used in the Declaration of Independence that the same moral person as the posterity of Britain continued after the Declaration of Independence, even though a new political identity was born. And thus, if the British colonies are the same moral person as the United States of America, then this inescapable conclusion must follow. The same moral covenant, namely the Solemn League Covenant, made between God and Britain and between God and all of Britain's posterity and all his majesty's dominions must for the same reasons oblige the moral person of the United States of America. How I ask in all moral rectitude can the Continental Congress accuse the king and parliament 
of Britain of moral injury against the colonies and the states for violating charters and laws and forms of government when the colonies and the states are guilty of infinitely higher moral injury against the Most High God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords for neglecting and rejecting His solemn league and covenant with them as the posterity of Britain. Let me close the sermon today with one example of how the Scripture uses the same argument that I have just used to demonstrate the continuity of a moral person in different stages of existence. When David seeks to demonstrate the continuity of the same moral person from conception to mature adulthood, He uses personal pronouns that make clear that he is the same moral person at conception as he is in his adulthood. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 14, David refers to God's knowledge of him in his present adult existence. And we note especially in Psalm 139, 1-4, how David expresses this, God's knowledge of him, when he uses, notice the pronouns that he uses here. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsetting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compass my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. And yet, when we turn to Psalm 139, Later on in the same chapter, verses 13 through 16, David refers to God's knowledge of him in his mother's womb. Consider especially verses 15 through 16. And notice again the pronouns. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. You see, we rightly conclude that when David uses the same pronouns for his existence in his mother's womb and for his existence as an adult, that the Holy Spirit of God is saying that David in his mother's womb and David in his adult maturity are the same moral person. Don't we conclude that? Of course we do. 
And for that reason, abortion is murder. In spite of all the changes that that microscopic person will undergo in becoming an adult, that embryo is the same moral person as an adult. And so likewise, and for the same reasons, we rightly conclude that the British colonies and the United States of America were the same moral person before the Declaration of Independence and after the Declaration of Independence. All their actions in Congress and the very words they used demonstrate they believe this to be the case. And so it was. Thus, dear ones, if it is murder to abort a child in the womb, regardless of the stage of development, because that child is the same moral person before as after birth, then I submit to you, it is the treasonous sin of covenant breaking against God for the United States not to acknowledge and embrace the solemn league and covenant that bound Britain and bound the British colonies as the posterity of Britain. For Britain, the British colonies, and the United States are one moral person. Dear ones, if all we had to do to remove ourselves from lawful covenants was to change our legal identity by changing our name or our citizenship, no lawful covenant, whether made with God or man, would be sacred. A man who did not want to be married to his wife any longer could simply change his name and legal identity and then by the stroke of a pen, the moral person that was previously bound by covenant to his wife would die and a new moral person would all of a sudden come to life who could engage in a new covenant with a new wife without any sin or guilt. All business contracts could be dissolved by changing the legal identity of a company. A baptism vows made to God could be rendered null and void by simply changing one's legal identity. Dear ones, such a view would render all lawful covenants and contracts, whether with God or man, a joke. May we not sinfully and treasonously look for ways to remove ourselves or our nation from lawful covenants made with the Most High God who has graciously condescended to enter into covenant with undeserving sinners like you and me. But rather, may we seek by God's grace the strength and resolve to faithfully honor and keep our covenants with God, whether our baptismal covenants, our marital covenants, our business contracts and covenants, or the solemn league and covenant. Dear ones, none of us, none of us can perfectly and sinlessly keep the covenants we have made with God or man. For that reason, we must cast ourselves upon Christ, the perfect covenant keeper, to be our righteousness before God. We never come to God and hold up our covenant keeping and say, Lord, accept me on the basis of my covenant keeping because every one of us has violated whatever covenant we have ever engaged ourselves in 
we have, we have violated, we have sinned against that covenant in thought, word, or deed. And therefore, we must cast ourselves entirely upon Christ who has fulfilled all righteousness in keeping covenant perfectly in the covenant of grace. He alone is our righteousness. He alone can grant us repentance and forgiveness. He alone can give to us perseverance to get back up after we have sinned and violated our covenant and to start afresh and anew, realizing it is God that helps us and strengthens us. Dear ones, once we begin to cast away lawful covenants, we must likewise, I submit to you, cast away our God. You can't cast away lawful covenants without casting away God Himself. For everything we have that is good and everything we ever hope to have is based upon covenant with God. It is all by means of God's covenant of grace to us in Christ Jesus that we who were the enemies of God became the children of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ by covenant. Let us not excuse ourselves. Let us not neglect, ignore, despise lawful covenants. Let us be thankful. Praise God that we have the privilege to be in covenant with the living God. Let us stand in prayer. Our most gracious and merciful God, we come to Thee, our covenant-keeping God, we who have broken covenant in so many ways, Lord, pleading for Thy mercy, asking that Thou would hear our prayers as we approach Thee, Lord, unto Thy throne of grace. Lord, we praise Thee that Thy word is clear and that, Lord, even though the forefathers of this nation had rejected that solemn league and covenant, they understood to a large extent the whole concept of the moral person. And they used and appealed to that idea and concept even in their documents, their writing and their actions. Father, how much more we who have, Lord, a, a far more clear understanding of thy word by thy grace ought to therefore cling, Lord, to the covenants made with our forefathers and we as their posterity to embrace those covenants and for this nation, Lord God, to embrace that solemnly in covenant. Our Lord and our God, we do plead with thee that thou would forgive us, cleanse us, Lord God, renew us, Lord, before thee in all our covenant obligations. May, Lord, this time of worship and this closing prayer be a time of covenant renewal for us. Lord, we pray that at all times we gather before thee, with thy people, that, Lord, we would take the opportunity to see that as an opportunity to renew our covenant with thee. So, Father, we, we do pray 
that thou would hear us, forgive us, strengthen us in our resolve, O Lord, to press on. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.